Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Being in an autonomous vehicle can be a lot of work. It takes two people, one in the driver's seat, one in the passenger seat, each describing what they're seeing and what the car will be doing and confirming it to each other. These are the voices of Roger Monte and Colin Jones. They are autonomous vehicle system test specialists for Argo AI. That's a Pittsburgh-based company that's teamed up with Ford to test its autonomous driving technology in Miami. Monte is in the driver's seat. Jones is working on a laptop in the passenger seat. Going through, we got a red light up ahead. We're in a Ford Fusion decked out with cameras and LiDAR sensors mounted all around the outside. Its trunk is full of computing gear, so it can operate without a driver. But Monty is in full command of the wheel, gas, and brakes during what you're hearing now. While Argo allowed me to ride along during an autonomous drive, it would not allow me to record while the car was actually in autonomous mode. Argo AI and Ford came to Miami almost two years ago to test its driverless technology. They're among the companies pushing autonomous vehicle development in Florida. Those companies have come to Florida for several reasons. There's a relatively great road infrastructure, not too many potholes. Cities in Florida, especially in, in southern Florida, are pretty congested. Miami drivers, they like to drive a little bit aggressive at times. There's definitely interesting things that we, we see in the Sunshine State that we don't see anywhere else. You know, we see a lot of vehicles that sometimes take U-turns in the middle of intersections. Florida has some, some really high-quality leading regulation on enabling autonomous vehicles. We don't have a, a policy framework for testing autonomous vehicles from the federal government. So it's all in the hands of the states now. So more than once has testing been affected by love bug season. Wildlife aside, Florida was one of the first states to welcome the industry to test the technology on its streets. One company is testing autonomous taxis in the villages. Another has put driverless semi-trucks on the turnpike. We'll hear from the CEO of that company later on in the program. And Argo AI and Ford are in Wynwood. So this is the calibration room. These vehicles, right, are research units. They are scientific pieces of equipment, LIDAR, radar, cameras, right, so they need to be precisely calibrated, tuned. Uh, we have a car turner essentially. Maria Fierros manages the Miami the terminal for Ford's autonomous vehicles. Targets, Ford is testing its fusions with Argo AI's driverless technology. In the vehicle, Inside right, so this single-story warehouse garage among the street art in the Wynwood neighborhood sits what could become the future of personal transportation. It's a fleet of Ford fusions with the latest driverless vehicle technology from Argo AI. Should we take for a spin? Yeah, you're all set? All right. Where do I sit? In the back seat. Do you guys play the radio while you're driving? Yes, Keep it at a very low, low volume. <laughs> Turning on the driverless technology, allowing the computer to take over all functions, is as easy as pushing the cruise control button on the steering wheel. There is a big red button just below the radio that disconnects everything in an emergency. The car accelerates and brakes when it's supposed to, even if the ride is a little jerky in autonomous mode. Its turns are pitch perfect, no under or over steering. And it's a cautious driver, slowing and stopping on yellow lights, not pulling into an intersection to turn left against traffic, waiting for cross traffic to clear, coming to a full stop behind a stop sign. The development of this technology won't be a big driver of employment in Florida. Right now, its technology is imported here from California and Pennsylvania, imported for testing. 
These companies have a few dozen workers in Florida right now. That's it? Yeah. All right. We're good. So we can unbuckle? Yes. All right. Instead, they're focused on the market Florida represents, good driving conditions, and serving a growing and aging population. Let's see. you got to unlock the door here, though. How do I unlock the door? There we go. <laughs> Leave it to me to get locked into the autonomous vehicle. So still to come, the boss at the company whose technology is empowering the autonomous vehicles tested on Miami streets. Robotics is a, is a tactile sport. You have to uh, see real-world results and be in the field to be able to test and adequately understand how well the technology is working. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. The promise of driverless cars in the future is much larger than the neighborhoods you may see the technology being tested on the streets today. It's been almost two years since Ford Fusion cars outfitted with technology from Argo AI have been driving around Wynwood and downtown Miami. These cars can navigate the streets without a driver, but there is someone always in the driver's seat watching the road. There's a second person in the passenger seat monitoring all the technology. So these cars are not considered fully autonomous by the industry. But that's not the goal. We spoke with Argo AI CEO Brian Seleski from his office in Pittsburgh. When these go into, um, into the market and are deployed someday in the future, uh, they won't require any sort of human intervention. So they'll be able to operate within uh, specific streets that we've um, that we've tested on, that, that we've said are, are okay to drive autonomously, um, and, and no, no human will, be, uh, will, will need to intervene, and you'll be able to get a ride and get to where you want to go. So it's been almost a year since Argo's technology has been deployed on the streets of Miami in these Ford vehicles. So what kind of technological changes have you had to deploy, either on the hardware side or even the software side? as you've used the Miami streets as this testing ground and are looking to, you know, move this from research into real commerce in the years ahead? Yeah, I mean, it's really helped us evolve our uh, prediction uh, software. And, and what I mean by that is the system needs to detect all of the, you know, relevant objects around it, whether it be vehicles, pedestrians, uh, bicyclists, and so on. Um, but it's not enough to just detect that they're that they're around the car. You also have to predict what are they likely about to do. So what we've been able to do is really refine these algorithms to predict that you know what that pedestrian looks like they're about ready to jaywalk. They're not in a crosswalk, but that's okay. Like we need to yield and, and sort of give them room to be able to cross safely. Um, you know, it, it's it's every, it's it's to a normal human driver, it's everyday innocuous events, but all of these things add up into um, driving experience that we can then uh, that we can then test against and make sure that the that the self-driving system is able to handle really well. Do these also add up to a product that is ultimately specifically designed for a unique environment in which it's been tested in? In other words, the the products that you've been testing in Miami are there only going to be able to uh, kind of move into a business environment, in other words, commerce uh, in Miami, or are these systems applicable uh, to other cities? They're absolutely applicable to other cities. We're testing actually in, uh, in, in four other cities right now. And, um, you know, 
the more variation we can throw at the system in terms of scenarios and different driving styles, the better we're able to build software that adapts to those things and make sure that we're not um, building a system that's overly um, tailored to one particular street or, or route or environment. Um, and so, you know, between Miami, D.C., uh, Detroit area, Palo Alto, we've got a great set of ver- uh, variety of, of driving behavior styles, and, and, you know, it's helped us really build a robust system around that. In 2017 and in 2019, you wrote on your company's blog that self-driving cars won't be common on city streets for years. Why not? Yeah, well, this is a difficult problem, right? Um, We want to first off put safety first in everything that we do. Uh, That's just our whole company culture is is built around that. Um, We we only want to deploy this when it's truly ready and it's been demonstrated to work really well. Um, And so, you know, what I had said a couple years ago is that they're not going to be ubiquitous. In other words, you're not going to see them on city streets across, you know, every major U.S. city uh, in your daily life. What you're going to see is specific cities where, um, you know, the community is engaged and excited about what we're doing, and we're, and we're going to do sort of a slow ramp in each city um, as we get that driving experience and able to prove that the system works really well. Um, and, and then we're going to ramp it up from there, right, from a small fleet of vehicles that, um, that provides uh, rides to, you know, people or for goods, and then ramp that up slowly to hundreds and then thousands and, and so on. But it's going to be a, a gradual uh, ramp. I don't think it's going to be a zero to one kind of binary switch that, that's going to happen. So what are the limitations that you have uh, discovered and run up against during your testing phase here, particularly with the uh, South Florida testing? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, a lot of what we are currently focused on is handling a lot of uh, edge cases. So uh, we actually encountered a vehicle the other day in, in Miami that was going down the, the wrong way uh, of, a, of a divided boulevard. Um, and, you know, making sure that the vehicle is able to, uh, you know, detect that, even though it's like completely unexpected in terms of rules of the road, uh, be able to pull over quickly and, and um, you know, mitigate something like that. You know, that's some of the advantage of what self-driving cars can provide, right? It never gets distracted. It's always paying attention, and it's always looking for these kinds of anomalous events. Whereas a human driver, if they were buried in their phone or, or not entirely paying attention, I think there could have been a collision that day. Um, so it's those types of things that were, um, we call it the long tail of testing, sort of the edge cases that we have to handle. We're, we're right in the middle of, of, of dealing with those types of things. And do those kind of incidents float up to the CEO's office? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I see uh, I see all of the events that are um, like truly like crazy or anomalous in these cities. And, and you know, it, it lets me um, make sure that the organization's, you know, uh, prioritizing um, the full space of uh, sort of possibilities of what might happen on, on, on roads. Yeah, because your background is on the technology side, not on the business operations side, right? Well, you know, it's funny thing about robotics in general. Um, there's always a huge field testing and operations component to everything that that I've done in my career, and I think others in my in my spot would feel the same way. Um, robotics is a is a tactile sport. You have to uh, see 
real world results and be in the field to be able to test and adequately understand how well the technology is working. Um, that's the only way to make sure that, that, um, that you're building something that, that will not just work in a lab type of environment, but uh, and the lab for us is like a closed test course, right? Um, you have to do both because you get exposed to a lot of different scenarios that helps you in the end make the system a lot better. So I guess I've always had a background and experience in both. For cities that are hosting Argo Ford cars, what have you encountered in terms of changes to the traffic infrastructure that may be necessary in order to support fully the kind of technology, the kind of driverless technology that you aim for? Yeah, so the system we build today does not rely on any sort of quote-unquote smart infrastructure. Um, uh, the way we're building it is it's a completely self-contained system. So it's able to operate without any connection to the outside world. It's able to operate uh, safely. Now, as infrastructure does get smarter, it becomes in some ways another sensor that's available to the, to the computer that gives it more information. And more information is always a good thing. Uh, well, usually a good thing. And so what, we, uh, what we'll see is, you know, let's say that at some point a city deploys a smart traffic light that's able to um, send out information about its state, whether it's red, yellow, or green. Uh, we can take that information and compare it to what our cameras see and make sure that uh, the whole system is working correctly. And if there's a discrepancy, we'll obviously default to the safest state, which would be uh, to stop or to send some sort of diagnostic, okay? Um, and so as the city becomes smarter, our cars will get smarter, and so will every other connected vehicle that has that sort of uh, capability. Yeah, what kind of considerations are involved with that kind of private-public partnership? I'm thinking just even right now, today, there's been significant public investment in South Florida on traffic light synchronization, for instance. Right. Uh, not necessarily smart traffic lights, but uh, smarter traffic lights, I guess, would be a more accurate description. Putting that kind of technology um, intersecting with a private enterprise like Argo, what are those considerations that the public ought to be aware of uh, as you know, local officials are presented with these opportunities? Yeah, I think people need to look at the long term, which is that as vehicles get smarter and and become what's called connected. In other words, they have the ability to um, they have the ability to receive and send information to uh, these other infrastructure elements. Um, there's an opportunity to improve safety and also improve throughput through the the city streets. Um, these are these are good things because um, today there are some intersections where the geometry is awkward. There's poles and other infrastructure that occludes where it's difficult to see around corners, for example. You can imagine smart infrastructure being able to uh, send information about a bicyclist who's crossing the street right around one of those corners. But are there proprietary um, concerns involved in having kind of the public domain information, the traffic lights, feeding private enterprise systems? Well, I think this this needs to be managed, you know, carefully, right? Uh the important part to note is that um, if it's if it's built correctly, and this is something that the standards bodies that work on these types of uh, protocols are, are thinking about, is to make sure that people's privacy is protected. Privacy considerations being one uh, part of it. The other part of it where I'm thinking is kind of the high bidder. Like if, if Argo were to pay for the tra smart traffic light information, those cars could be better enabled. Uh, I, maybe there's an analogy um, with uh, uh, net neutrality. Uh, right? Like, you know, if, if a company 
involved with autonomous vehicles is able to provide a higher fee, for instance, for traffic information to make their cars go more efficiently? Could could that kind of environment be constructed here? I suppose it could be, but I think it's important to note that we're way in the early days of this. And, and uh, you know, our view is that this sort of technology should be, uh, should be democratized. It's important that whatever we do, that it benefits the community at large. And, and uh, you know, if public money is going toward uh, traffic infrastructure, uh, my view is it, shouldn't, it should not be put to use to benefit only one company. Um, I, I say that even as, uh, even as the CEO of one of the companies working in this space. How important has Miami and South Florida been in the development of Argo's business? It's just been essential, um, and, and I think the thing that that makes me just really happy, and, and Miami is one of my out of the cities we're testing is is among my favorite. I will say, uh, just because. Should we tell the other cities that, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's well, I think it's fine, right? Uh, and, and I'll tell you why, though. It's because the um, I've just been so amazed at how much the community has. Um, you know, at a ground level has, has embraced it and has asked. We get emails all the time with just great questions. Um, we get, uh, I've been in the car in a few times getting, uh, getting a ride in an Argo vehicle and somebody will kind of knock on the window on like on a motorcycle. And, uh, and, and, and one of our test drivers engaged in a, in a Spanish conversation. And I, I, did, I was able to track enough of it to be dangerous. But then I asked the driver, I said, well, what was he asking about? You know, did, did he want us to do something different back at that intersection? And the driver said, no, no, no. He was complimenting how well we sort of moved, gave him room to make a, a lane change uh, 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 a mile down previously down the road and was asking about how we did that and, and, and so forth. So it, it's just, uh, I, I, you know, that engagement and friendliness has just been, uh, has been wonderful. Let me ask you about your impression of the Miami business community. And I ask this because Miami has, and South Florida has been investing considerable uh, time and energy and even capital money in developing uh, its technology industry. Uh, Argo is based in Pittsburgh. It uh, is kind of comes out of the DNA of uh, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, what's your perception of Miami as a uh, technological hub, uh, given the fact that you're able to work across many different geographies here, including Austin, Texas, and Palo Alto, California, near Silicon Valley? Uh, give us some feedback. Well, I think Miami has a lot going for it in terms of a of a tech startup environment. Um, you know, we found there to be a lot of really great talent uh, in the city. A lot of who we're hiring today are operations people, um, uh, vehicle service technicians, um, and and uh, and drivers and, and test operators. Uh, we've had a lot of success in hiring across all those roles. We found extremely hardworking people who are super passionate about um, about kind of what we're doing and, and about making transportation safer. I, I, Miami's been super welcoming. I, I think any tech company should absolutely look at Miami as a serious uh, hub for what for what they're doing. Would Argo? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're just in the very beginning stages of um, of of kind of getting to know Miami and, and, uh, you know, we obviously have a, a sizable, um, uh, vehicle operation there where, where we're getting great, um, we're getting great feedback and testing, but I think someday, you know, we could also at some point look at, um, 
look at expanding into more of the engineering side of things. I, I, I look at that. I look at all the cities that we're in uh, for that sort of potential, and, and Miami is absolutely right there. That's Brian Selesky, CEO of Argo AI. The company's based in Pittsburgh and is testing its autonomous driving technology inside Ford cars on the streets of Miami. Selesky, for what it's worth, drives an Audi Q7 during the week. He says his weekend vehicle is a Ford F-150 pickup. Still to come, building big rigs for no drivers. I think the thing that is most exciting about autonomy is, is how quickly it can become boring. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. If you happen to be driving on a certain 9.4-mile stretch of the Florida Turnpike south of Orlando on Father's Day last year, you may have shared the road with something that has never happened before on an American public highway. A semi-truck driving along with no driver at the controls, an autonomous 18-wheeler. Lane keeping. 55. This is from a promotional video Starsky Robotics made after the inaugural autonomous trip. It shows a white Volvo big rig pulling a trailer with Starsky Robotics logo on it. And it's kind of eerie to see video from inside the cab. No one's there. The wheel is making slight adjustments as it moves down the turnpike with Sunday morning traffic going about its usual business. We all woke up really early to, to beat the, the, the amount of traffic that happens on a Sunday morning on the turnpike and uh, drove a truck with no person in it. That's Stefan Saltoxmacher. He's the CEO of Starsky Robotics, the company that makes the autonomous driving technology. On that Father's Day trip, there was a remote control driver, but he only took control driving to and from the highway, not on the turnpike itself. After all the testing that led to that truck driverless drive in June, Saltoxmacher was pretty nonchalant about it. The funny thing about doing validation testing is you do the same test over and over and over and over again. You watch every different way that it might possibly fail. You, you intentionally make the system fail. By the time you end up taking that person out of the vehicle, while, while obviously there's apprehension, while obviously there's, there's excitement at this thing that no one has ever done before, at the end of the day, it's a truck driving 10 miles. And, and so the, the first 30 seconds are, oh, my gosh, what's it going to do? Is it going to take this turn correctly? Is it going to merge into traffic collect truck correctly? Is it going to uh, be able to handle being overtaken by this other truck? And then pretty soon it's a truck driving on the highway. Starsky Robotics is banking on a driverless truck just driving down the highway, and Florida has been key in testing its technology. From my perspective, there's only five to seven other states that are that are quite so tech-forward as, as Florida is. And I think Florida has a number of advantages uh, uh, as, as opposed to those other states. And part of that is there's, there's a number of people in the state of Florida who have been thinking about the regulatory hurdles, the regulatory challenges to deploying autonomy, just, just frankly longer than other states have been. And that's a, that's a really big advantage. Things like how do, you, how do you deal with writing up a ticket for an unmanned vehicle? How do you, how do you deal with, um, with roadside inspections? 
a lot of these are really rather mundane seeming challenges that are ultimately some of the important uh, hurdles to cross before you can really have deployments. Florida first invited autonomous vehicle testing to the state in 2012. And just days before the Starsky truck drove with no one on board, Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation allowing autonomous vehicles with no driver in the vehicle to be tested on public roads. Florida also requires the least amount of liability insurance for those driverless vehicles. What about the low regulatory financial environment? I don't mean in terms of credit and banking, but in Florida, as I understand, the liability insurance for autonomous vehicles is lower than what it is in some states. Is that an important piece of the financial puzzle as a company like Starsky is looking to not only test these kinds of uh, technologies, but also invest in places where uh, yeah. where it's going to get a good return on investment? It's definitely a piece. The The issue with the insurance requirements is, is an interesting one. Uh, in time, as there's larger actuarial tables, insurance for autonomous vehicles should go incredibly down. Like simply having a lot of cameras on the vehicle and having a, a really good sense of what exactly happened, that itself should meaningfully decrease insurance costs. But but having high insurance minimums at the early stages of deployment uh, take a, basically increase costs before you can have the benefit of those those broader actuarial tables. So that, that is definitely an advantage that Florida has is that there, there isn't a particularly large insurance requirement. But to be honest, the states that have those large insurance requirements really only have them to make it more difficult for people to come and test. It's really just kind of a, a barrier to entry to make it less of a burden for, for the broader environment to, to deal with. And it's, it's, it's kind of an easy cop out, you could say. While Florida has given the green light for the autonomous vehicle industry to come here to test its technology, a lot is at stake for Florida's workforce. Florida ranks third among the states in the number of truck drivers calling at home. In 2018, there were more than 88,000 Floridians making a living driving semi-trucks. And the average wage, $42,000 a year. That's a little bit less than the statewide average. Almost 25,000 tractor-trailer drivers live in South Florida, making an average of $41,000 a year. Now, This is all according to the federal government's Bureau of Labor Statistics. If the future of truck driving is not inside the cab, behind the wheel, looking at the world through a windshield, what happens to all those livelihoods? So this is already an uncertain, hard job that, that forces drivers to really just work hard and and still not always be able to put food on the table for their families. What we want to do with truck driving is we want to we want to turn it at least for certain bread routes, we want to turn it into a a comfortable shift office job where you go into an office, you work 8 hours, you drive a number of trucks getting them on and off of the highway and you you leave you leave the office after your shift is done and you go home and you spend that time with your family. What about the education that is necessary for the kind of job that you're envisioning here? So Steve Jobs had a thing that was the great products don't really need to come with a, a massive user manual. That if you, if you build a product correctly, it just kind of makes sense to use. There's one version of this where we make driving a truck as complicated as flying a 747. And absolutely, if that is the case, if that is the end product, it's going to be ridiculously hard to get a job as a truck driver. You'll have to go through all sorts of courses and training and all of that. And I would argue that that's, that's not great productization. That's not great product strategy. What we have to do is we have to build a system that is intuitive to use, that is inherently safe, so that 
If you're a highly skilled truck driver, you can you can get the load from A to B. And if you're not a very highly skilled truck driver, if, if you're not even a good truck driver, you might not be able to get the load from A to B, but you won't be able to hurt anybody. Stefan Salt-Oxmacher is the CEO of Starsky Robotics, a maker of technology for autonomous trucks. It's been testing its technology here in Florida. Still to come, how the state's green light for autonomous vehicle testing hopes to lead to consumer demand. It will be very difficult for you to have demand for these types of solutions if that solution has never been around before. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Autonomous vehicles, cars and trucks, have been driving around Florida streets and highways for a few years now, but you can't buy one or rent one. Tesla offers an autopilot feature in something it calls full self-driving. Neither meet the industry definition of autonomous technology. But the market potential is as high as the promise of self-driving vehicles. Americans still love cars. Research from Bloomberg finds three and a half out of every 100 miles traveled by cars in the U.S. are in shared vehicles. That includes rental cars, taxis, and ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft. For the U.S. in 2040, we came to roughly 15% of miles being eligible to be traveled in shared autonomous vehicles. This is Alejandro Zamorano. He's an analyst with Bloomberg New Energy Finance. If that addressable market that we calculated of 15% of all the light duty miles in 2040 being part of shared uh, autonomous vehicles materializes, we're talking about 7 to 8 million autonomous cars in 2040 in, on U.S. roads from a base of 1,500 today, I believe. That's the number of cars that are being tested on public roads, according to the Department of Transport. It's an enormous possibility, and Florida is among the few states that are at the forefront of developing this market. The vehicles aren't built here, the technology isn't really developed here, but the testing of the gear and the market potential for users are. We don't have a, a policy framework for testing autonomous vehicles from the federal government, so it's all in the hands of the states now. 28 states have policies that allow you to test autonomous vehicles on public roads. Recently, I believe it became it came into effect on July 1st, Florida did an update to two policies that were put in place in 2012 and 2016 that allowed testing on autonomous vehicles on public roads. And it's a pretty comprehensive framework that very clearly says what you can do and what you can't do, which is what testers value a lot when they are looking for a place to go uh, test their vehicles. With 27 other states welcoming this industry in, this autonomous vehicle testing industry, what sets Florida apart? That's, that's a very good question. I think that the three factors we mentioned before on congestion demographics and weather uh, play, play a big role. You could say that the state has allowed testing since 2012. Um, there's a track record uh, by the state uh, regulators on how to deal with these tests, so I, I think that's a, a big plus for companies that are looking for new places to go test. The fact that there's a state that is, you know, for which these cars are not completely new. Florida has the advantage that it has been allowing these tests for a while. 
And I think that makes it quite interesting that there's a track record of the state allowing these tests on public roads for the for the companies. Arguably, there's more competition uh, amongst those states. You mentioned 28 states now uh, allow tests of autonomous vehicles on public roads. Florida is far from alone. So the majority of states now are perhaps you know racing to try to get those uh, vehicles tested on the road. What's at stake for a state like Florida? Uh, and forget about the market potential in Florida for autonomous vehicles. I'm just wondering more about the economic development of the industry here. Are there stakes in regards to the industry coming to Florida and perhaps staying in states where it has a history of vehicle testing? I think so, yeah. Um, we were saying that there are 28 states states where you can test, but there's a, a little bit of nuance to that. And there are significantly less states. It's something around 15 states that allow you to test without a backup driver in the vehicle and allow you to uh, offer services in that vehicle to the public. Florida is one of those states. So that means so the, no driver in the car at all? No driver in the car at all. There is a protocol on how to deal with the vehicle if it, if it faces a situation where the system doesn't know how to react or if a, a police officer needs to pull over the vehicle. There's a protocol to deal with those. Um, but yeah, that the... the the competition pool is actually smaller with the new policies that Florida put in place because it brings it to the point where California, Arizona, and Nevada are, which are the three big hubs for testing autonomous vehicles today. So now Florida is in that tier, um, which it wasn't before. And being in that tier opens a whole bunch of opportunities because it gives a lot of flexibility to testers. Back to your original question on what's the benefit for Florida, you know, the way to develop the technological cluster is by allowing testers to come in. So you, you, you don't stand a chance as a region um, in building an, an industry around technology for, for autonomous vehicles if the companies are not there testing the vehicles on your state. Um, so, you know, if you have good le- legislation for testing, that it's clear that it's attractive for testers, then you start getting more testers. Testers start to bring more people. More people start to settle in the state. And these are, you know... It, it, it snowballs as the cluster develops into potentially new jobs and, and new opportunities to the people of the state. Snowballs are uh, not something a lot of Floridians are familiar with, Alejandro. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a sandcastle could be uh, uh, more of an apt metaphor. Um, and perhaps more accurate here because a sandcastle can, you know, you can spend a lot of time, energy, and money building it up, but it can be wiped away relatively quickly. So what are the ingredients that this technological and manufacturing kind of combination of industries and the autonomous vehicle, uh, what are they looking for to create these kinds of clusters? And frankly, is Florida in the conversation with states like California, with obviously its wide technological base or the geographic closeness to Arizona and Nevada, the other places where this is happening? It will be very difficult for you to have demand for these types of solutions if the solution has never been around before. So, so you there's mean a, the, the demand from the market for yeah, from, the actual from product? from final users. Yeah, from final users. So people exactly. buying or using these cars. Okay. Absolutely. And that's we see it here in San Francisco, um, especially with Cruise, which is a company owned by General Motors, and they're heavily testing in the city. And their cars have very big signs, and you can see the sensors on top of the vehicle. They have hundreds of those cars driving around the, the peninsula, um, the, the Silicon Valley area. 
So people are be- become quite familiar with them. They become part of your daily life. You know, we have these cars that are driving themselves, and eventually we're going to start offering mobility services to, to people who, who opt in, and getting people used to seeing the cars on the streets and realizing that, you know, this thing is not just something that I read in the newspaper. They're actually here on my city. I can see them, and I increasingly see them. So unless you have that, I think it will be a pretty steep hill to climb if you, if you want to deploy those you know those cars in a in a place uh, once the technology has been perfected so the you know the incremental familiarization with the vehicles and with what with what they offer that results from allowing you to test those cars in in your state it's going to determine the demand for the services that you can access through them in the future so it it basically puts you in the bucket of first adopters in a way if you have a lot of testing, then it's very likely that you're going to have a lot of first adopters, which means that eventually, you know, if things work out, that you will see large deployments in, in your state. What is the business model for the autonomous vehicle industry? That is the million-dollar question right there. And uh, most car makers don't even really know themselves. Increasingly, and by increasingly, I mean all but one car company, of these top 10 large uh, manufacturers are planning on deploying the autonomous vehicles as part of shared mobility networks. What that means is that the, the vehicle, the autonomous car, will not be owned by the user, but the user will pay a fee to access that car. The reason why they see deployment working better for them as part of mobility of shared mobility networks is that you're increasing the base that is paying for the cost of that expensive car that has all these systems that need to be that need to be flawless and that are running in a in a complex network in a city, um, it will be quite expensive for you and I, uh, even you know, in twenty forty, to go buy a fully autonomous car uh, because they're gonna you know it it's gonna have more more sensors and more things in it. So that's a a sound way, in my view, of okay. We might not be able to sell these cars to individuals, but they'll get to access them as part of a mobility service. That's where where we see the business model. Alejandro Zamorano is an analyst with Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Still to come, a financial statement, personal story of money and the price of life in South Florida. We knew that we, when moving, probably uh, cost of living was going to be a little bit lower. That story is still to come. 